Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, my fellow believers, and welcome into episode number 26 of Combat Bets with Jason Barron on the Believe Network. Thank you so much for joining me on another great episode. Apologies for not getting my next episode out sooner. I hope my listeners haven't missed me too much. And now that I'm here, I have decided to kind of change things up a bit in terms of the format of this podcast. So for this podcast episode number 26, I'll be focusing exclusively on the UFC and MMA, and then in my other podcast, I'll be focusing exclusively on boxing, and I really think this is going to make it easier for the listeners, because if you're a UFC fan, you can listen to this podcast. If you're a boxing fan, you can listen to my other podcast, and I think I'm going to keep doing this uh, each time I do a new recording. So I really hope you enjoy this one, which again will be on the UFC. And of course, coming up this Saturday, we've got the big fight, the rematch between Stipe Miocic and Francis Ngannou, and I'll be previewing that fight later on in the show. And right now I'm going to hit some big news and notes that have came up in the UFC world. We learned that Khabib Nurmagomedov, perhaps the GOAT in MMA, has officially retired, although I would not be all that surprised if a fight between George St. Pierre and Khabib gets made at some point in the future. I just think those two are destined to meet in the octagon, and I'm really hoping that happens not only for the UFC, but for both of these fighters' careers, and it would just be a really great fight to watch. Also, Misha Tate has ended her retirement and will be returning to the Octagon uh, coming in July, so we can look forward to that as well. And since we've got the big heavyweight title fight coming up this weekend, I just want to look at the heavyweight contenders here. Right now, Stipe Miocic is the champion, and then number one contender, Francis Ngannou, number two, Derek Lewis, three, Curtis Blades, Four, Cyril Gane, and five, Alexander Volkov. Six, Jarzinho Rosenstrike. So this is pretty interesting because we've definitely seen a big change in the heavyweight division. Long gone are the heavyweight greats of past like Junior Dos Santos and Alistair Overeem. Now we've got this younger crop of fighters coming in. But guess what? The old guy still at the top, and that's of course Stipe Miocic quite possibly the best heavyweight of all time. And what also makes it interesting is that a lot of these top contenders have already fought against each other. For example, Derek Lewis just fought Curtis Blades, Cyril Gane fought Jarzinho Rosenstrike, Alexander Volkov also fought Curtis Blades and lost to him. 
So this makes it really interesting because of the matchups and what's already played out in the heavyweight division. But one big name that I haven't mentioned yet is, of course, John Bones Jones, the greatest light heavyweight of all time in the UFC, has now moved up to heavyweight and could likely challenge the winner of Stipe Miocic and Francis Ngannou. So I just kind of wanted to talk about how John Jones might fare in uh, the heavyweight division. If you've watched any workout videos of John Jones, he looks absolutely strong in there, very muscular, put on a lot of weight, a lot of muscle, and looks like a, a real beast, a real contender in that heavyweight division. So I can't wait to see him fight his uh, heavy in his heavyweight debut, and we'll see who he gets matched up against. And of course, we know John Jones because of his well-rounded game. He has very good takedown defense. He can also take you down. He's got long limbs, so he can throw a lot of elbows, a lot of kicks, really mix up his striking. So it's going to be interesting to see if he loses any speed by moving up in weight and if he can really contend with those naturally bigger men in the heavyweight division. And now a word from our sponsors, betonline.ag. Bet online, the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. March Madness is upon us. Bet online has you covered for all the news, scores, and odds. It's the best way to place your bets, and it's free to sign up. Head to the website betonline.ag or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online, your online sportsbook experts. And speaking of March Madness, I'm really glad to see UCLA back in the Sweet 16. It's the team I always root for as I am from Los Angeles. And of course, USC is also in the Sweet 16. I really like their big man, Evan Mobley. He's going to be a top five pick in the NBA draft. A long, rangy big man with some touch from the outside. I like what I see from him. And also Cade Cunningham from Oklahoma State. It's really too bad to see them get knocked out. But got to give a lot of credit to Oregon State there. They were the underdog going into the game. They played really well offensively. And Oklahoma State just couldn't catch them there at the end of the game. But Cade Cunningham has a very bright future in the NBA. He'll likely be the first overall pick. He's a big, rangy point guard. Uh, With a smooth offensive game, he can create his own shot or create for others. And I think he'll have even more success in the NBA than he did in college basketball. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Oral Roberts University. What a story they are reaching the Sweet 16 for the first time in their school history. And let's see if they can keep going and advancing in this awesome tournament. I just love watching them play. They shoot a lot of threes and they play with no fear despite taking on universities with a much bigger budget. They still play their hearts out and play really hard and that's part of the reason they've been able to overcome Ohio State and Florida in their first two games. Another reason is because of the play of Kevin O'Banner and Max Abmus. Boy, both of these guys can really play. They're a great duo to watch. And O'Banner kind of gets it done down in the paint. He can also 
make some threes. And their point guard, Max Abmus, is really fast. Uh, He can create a lot of fouls because of his speed. And he can uh, usually beat his guy off the dribble. So I'm really excited to see how far they can go from here. So we'll see what happens with Oral Roberts. But of course the favorite still has to be Gonzaga. They play a beautiful brand of basketball. A lot of body movement, a lot of ball movement. They've got really talented players on their team like Killian Tilly and uh, Jalen Suggs. So we'll see how uh, far they can go. But I still think Gonzaga is going to end up winning the title. But anything can happen as we've seen in this tournament. So we'll see how it all plays out. Really excited to watch more March Madness coming up this weekend. And of course, the big UFC fight with Francis Ngannou and Stipe Miocic. So with that, let's get into some UFC recaps of some past fight cards. I'll go ahead and start with UFC Fight Night Overeem vs. Volkov. And this was back on February 6th from the UFC Apex in Las Vegas, Nevada. I'll start with the co-main event here between Corey Sanhagen and Frankie Edgar. Well, guess what? Corey Sanhagen took care of the UFC legend Frankie Edgar in only 28 seconds with a beautiful flying knee. Edgar kind of put his head down and Corey Sanhagen beautifully capitalized on this. He jumped up, kneed him right in the head, put him out, and that was the end of the fight. One of the best knockouts I've seen all year in the UFC. Definitely a contender for knockout of the year. So since Corey Sandhagen suffered that first round submission loss to Aljamain Sterling, he has since went on to knock out Marlon Moras by second round knockout and also Frankie Edgar by first round knockout. So with more and more performances like these, I don't expect it to be too much longer until we see Corey Sanhagen once again in a title fight at bantamweight uh, challenging for that title. Perhaps a rematch against Aljamain Sterling after his controversial win over Peter Yan in their title fight. So we'll see where Corey Sanhagen goes from here. But he's definitely one of the best bantamweights in the world. And he's shown that uh, recovering from his loss to Aljamain Sterling beautifully with some great knockout wins over, as I mentioned, Marlon Moras and Frankie Edgar. Really impressed me with his overall performance there. And it just showed me that he's got a lot of striking versatility to his game. He's got a certain explosiveness to his movements and an unpredictability in there. You don't know if he's going to throw a kick or a punch. And he kind of just keeps his opponents guessing. And because he's such a tall and rangy fighter, he's usually fighting guys that are going to be shorter and more muscular. That was the case against Marlon Maras, also the case against Frankie Edgar. Whereas Aljamain Sterling is more similar to his body type. Aljamain Sterling is also tall and more rangy. He's not as short and muscular like a guy like Peter Yan is. So I think maybe that's part of the reason why he lost to Aljamain Sterling. But in my opinion, that rematch needs to happen, especially now that Aljamain Sterling holds that bantamweight title. And now let's move into the main event on that fight card, which was between Alexander Volkov and Alistair Overeem. And I thought that Volkov really looked impressive in here. I mean, Alistair Overeem could not even get on the inside 
to try to get some offense going. Volkov kept him on the outside with his long kicks, his long reach, and Overeem just looked like a shell of himself. And I believe that will be the last fight for Alistair Overeem in the UFC. And if it is, he's had an incredible career, giving us some great fights. And he's one of the best heavyweights of all time. He's an older fighter now. Overeem is 40 years old. He's been fighting, I believe, for over two decades now. A real veteran of the sport. But on this night, he just ran into a better fighter. Uh, the Russian heavyweight Alexander Volkov. Looking at the fight stats here. Uh, Overeem, he only landed 10 out of 20 total strikes. And he only had 15 seconds of ground control time. His opponent, Volkov, landed 54 out of 88 total strikes, and 47 of those were to the head with 11 seconds of ground control time. So as you can see, most of this fight was waged on the feet, and Volkov clearly was the better striker in there, mixing up his kicks and his punches, and really just impressing me overall with his boxing skills and his takedown defense. Because we saw previously in the fight against Curtis Blades that Volkov got taken down over and over again. And he really looked like he needed to work on that part of his uh, fight game in order to reach his full potential. And against Overeem, it was a much better performance. Really a dominant performance against a UFC legend. And we'll see where Volkov goes from here. And this fight ended in the second round with a knockout win for Volkov in a really dominant performance. And for Volkov, I'd love to see him either take on Derek Lewis or Cyril Gane next. These are two heavyweights coming off big wins, and since Alexander Volkov is also coming off this win over Alistair Overeem, I think it'd be great to match up two top heavyweight contenders up against each other and see how that plays out. And looking at Volkov's record, he's actually already fought Derek Lewis back in 2018, and Lewis won by knockout in the third round. So I think it'd be really interesting to see these two fighters do a rematch against each other. I think they've both gone better overall in their fight game since 2018, and it'd be interesting to see how that fight plays out. That was his first loss in the UFC. His second loss, of course, came to Curtis Blades by unanimous decision. And since then, he went on to knock out Walt Harris and Alistair Overeem, both by second round knockout. So you can see his fight game is evolving. And I don't think it'll be too long until we see Volkov in an even bigger fight because he's rounding out his game even more. He's really growing into his body, throwing a lot of kicks a lot of punches, really able to use his long range very well to keep these fighters on the outside and not really give them any hope. So hopefully Volkov can keep evolving in the fight game and continue this upward trajectory he's on in his very promising fight career. Now I'm going to move on to the next fight card, which is UFC 258, Usman vs. Burns, and that was back on February 13th. 2021 from the UFC Apex in Las Vegas, Nevada. I'll go ahead and start with the third fight on the card, and that was between Calvin Gastelum and Ian Heinish. 
Gaslin won by unanimous decision 29-28, 29-28, and 30-27 on the three judges' scorecards. And this was the type of bounce-back performance Gaslin needed after getting submitted so quickly by Jack Hermanson in the first round back when they fought. And Gaslin here, he really wrestled well in this fight, mixed up his striking pretty well, and kind of had Ian Heinish guessing the whole fight. He couldn't really get comfortable. And you see that in the fight stats. Gaston landed 51 total strikes, and he had 6 minutes and 50 seconds of ground control time, and was 6 of 14 on his takedown attempts. So it's clear his strategy was to take Heinish down and make this kind of a dirty fight, a grimy fight, that Heinish was really going to have to overcome a lot of obstacles in order to win. I thought that Gastelum really controlled him well for most of the fight. Although he got slightly outstruck on the feet, uh, Heinish landed 56 total strikes compared to Gastelum landing 51, and he had a minute and 11 seconds of ground control time, only one of six on his takedown attempts. So it's clear that Gastelum's wrestling really led to this win, and now I believe Gastelum is being matched up against Robert Whitaker in his next fight. I don't know how much I like that fight for Gastelum. I think that Whitaker might just be on a higher level of skill than Gastelum. Although Gastelum gave Israel Adesanya a very tough fight, we'll see if he can do the same against Robert Whitaker. I know I shouldn't underestimate Gastelum, but right now looking at that fight, looking at what Robert Whitaker has done in this past fight uh, against Darren Till in particular, I believe that he's going to go ahead and beat Gastelum. But that's a fight to look forward to in the future. For now, I'll get back to the main event of UFC 258, which was, of course, Kamara Usman versus Gilbert Burns for the welterweight title at 170 pounds. And this fight was actually supposed to happen before. However, the fight was postponed because Gilbert Burns, I believe, tested positive for COVID. And because it was postponed, Kamar Usman ended up taking on Jorge Masvidal, winning that fight by unanimous decision. And it was really a pretty boring fight because Usman basically controlled him along the cage or on the ground really wrestled his way to that victory over Jorge Masvidal. And now, finally, we got to see the fight we were all waiting for, which was Gilbert Burns against Kamara Usman. And early on, Gilbert Burns was having some success. He was landing some good punches on Usman and kind of getting him off balance. But that didn't last the whole fight because as the second round started, you could see Usman gaining more and more uh, comfortability in there. He switched stances and started throwing southpaw, I believe. And this fight really had me thinking that Usman might just have the best jab in all of the UFC. I mean, look at the effectiveness that he had against Gilbert Burns with it. Look at how he was able to keep a very quality fighter on the outside and really just take all the heart, all the hope, out of Gilbert Burns and perhaps finally reaching his dream of attaining that welterweight title. But guess what? The Nigerian nightmare Kamara Usman still reigns supreme because of his overall boxing skills. And that's what's going to make this guy so hard to dethrone. 
is he's so great on the feet. He can switch stances. He's got a power jab that absolutely pushes you back. And then look at his wrestling. It's almost impenetrable how good he is on the ground as well. I mean, you look at what he did against Tyron Woodley. You look how he dominated Jorge Masvidal. And I just really don't know if there's a fighter out there that can really give him a great fight other than Kazmat Shemaev. And Shemaev first has to prove he's healthy and back to his old self. So we'll see how he does in his return fight. But I think it's only a matter of time until Usman and Shemaev match up against each other. But getting back to this fight, I thought that Gilbert Burns had a decent chance of getting upset against Kamara Usman. But every time you think that, Usman just makes these great fighters look ordinary, whether it's with their striking or with their grappling. And another great thing about Usman is that you can see he can make in-fight adjustments. He can think about the fight in between rounds and realize what he has to do differently to gain an advantage on his opponent. And that's what makes these great fighters so hard to beat is that not only physically are they so far superior to their opponents, uh, in some cases, like with Kamara Usman, but also mentally and how they think the fight game gives them an advantage on top of that because they're always looking to see how they can get better, looking to see what weakness they can exploit in their opponents and honing in on that and uh, using that to their advantage. Because Usman knew against Gilbert Burns, a very good grappler, that he probably wouldn't make this much of a grappling match, that he'd really have to figure out how to beat him on the feet. And I said, as I said early on, Gilbert Burns was having some success touching up Kamar Usman. Usman quickly made that adjustment going into the second round. And then he pretty much had finished him off in that second round. That's why when the third round uh, came, that it only took Usman 34 seconds to end the fight, uh, winning by third round knockout. And the truth is that Gilbert Burns could still probably beat most welterweights in his division. I'd love to see him take on Colby Covington next. Two guys that have lost to Kamara Usman. But I think a matchup between Covington and Gilbert Burns would be really great. a really great fight between two quality guys. Both of them can wrestle. Both of them can strike. And I think they match up really well against each other. And of course, Kamara Usman, we already know that his next fight will be a rematch against Jorge Masvidal. I don't see that match going that much differently in their first fight. I think Usman wins and it's going to be a wrestling heavy attack just like it was in his first fight. Maybe he'll uh, mix it up a bit more with his striking, but unless Masvidal got a whole lot better in terms of his takedown defense, I don't know how that fight plays out any differently. Now, let's take a look at the fight stats for this fight. Usman landed two knockdowns. He landed 93 out of 149 total strikes, so very efficient there. And he had two minutes and five seconds of ground control time. Gilbert Burns landed 55 out of 124 total strikes, so not very efficient there, and he was 0 of 3 on his takedown attempts. So looking at these stats, it further proves what I was saying, that Gilbert Burns was very deliberate in his striking. I mean, he landed most of his strikes, 93 out of 149, that's a very high percentage, 
and then you look at Gilbert Burns 55 out of 124. This shows me that Usman was making him miss a lot and sometimes when you're missing a lot of punches, a lot of strikes, that can actually take more energy out of you than when you're actually landing because instead of hitting someone else's face or their body, you're hitting nothing but air and that can sometimes really drain their opponents and make them really tired. And I thought Usman, as the fight wore on, was getting more and more discouraged more and more fatigued and Usman was just getting stronger and stronger gaining more and more of an advantage and that's why he really had a quality performance in another title defense and another win for him is because of his all-around game his stamina his ability to make in-fight adjustments and also his ability to make great fighters look ordinary like he's done against Colby Covington Jorge Masvidal Tyron Woodley, and the latest victim was Gilbert Burns. Now let's move on to the next UFC fight card. And that would be UFC Fight Night Blades vs. Lewis on February 20th, 2021 from the UFC Apex in Las Vegas, Nevada. And in the main event, we had a heavyweight fight between two top heavyweight contenders in Curtis Blades and Derek Lewis. And going into this fight, Lewis was actually the underdog and I believe about a plus 300 or plus 400 underdog to Curtis Blades. But guess what? He cashed out. If you did happen to bet on Derek Lewis, he got the second round knockout after Curtis Blades went for a takedown. And he put his head right in the line of fire. Derek Lewis quickly took advantage of that, landing a devastating uppercut on the chin of Curtis Blades put him out cold. He followed it up with, I believe, two ground strikes that weren't needed. He was already unconscious. And that just shows you the power that Derek Lewis has. He can end someone's night with just one punch. And he did it once again against Curtis Blades, a very quality contender. And what puts this performance in even more perspective for me is look at what Curtis Blades did against Alexander Volkov another top heavyweight that I talked about earlier in the podcast. You look at how Curtis Blades was able to take him down over and over again, and against Derek Lewis, he couldn't take him down once. And you saw early on in the fight, in the first round, Curtis Blades went for a takedown, and Derek Lewis immediately swarmed on him, landed a couple good uppercuts, and that kind of dissuaded Curtis Blades from going for a takedown for the rest of uh, that first round. And that first round, I actually thought that Curtis Blades won. Even on the feet, he was out striking him, out landing him, throwing a lot of good punches, really able to touch up Derek Lewis, hurt him a few times. You thought maybe the fight would be over and Curtis Blades would win by first round knockout. But guess what? Derek Lewis stayed the course, was able to overcome that early onslaught from Curtis Blades. And you could just kind of tell he was just waiting for his moment to pounce. And he did exactly that in the second round. But as I said in that first round, I was really impressed with Curtis Blades. His overall striking ability. He was really able to win on the feet against a known power striker in Derek Lewis. Really touch him up and uh, kick the legs of Derek Lewis. Kind of put him on uneven legs because of uh, those power leg kicks that 
Curtis Blades was landing on Derek Lewis and looking at the fight stats, you actually would have probably thought that Curtis Blades won this fight. He landed 28 out of 52 total strikes and 7 to the legs. As I mentioned, powerful leg strikes to uh, Derek Lewis. And he had 15 seconds of ground control time, but was 0 of 3 on his takedown attempts. So could not make this a grappling match against the striker Derek Lewis. Derek Lewis landed 7 out of 23 total strikes, 6 of 21 to the head, and only 1 shot to the body. That's amazing. He only landed seven strikes the whole fight, but he really only needed one to end the fight. And that was, as I said, that beautiful uppercut that came in the second round as Curtis Blades was shooting for a takedown. And this fight showed me that Derek Lewis has solid takedown defense because against an expert wrestler in Curtis Blades, Blades could not take him down because of his expert striking and his ability to land those uppercuts as soon as Curtis Blades went for that takedown. And he that's how he ended the fight. And this also showed me that Derek Lewis has some of the best power punching in all of the UFC, which we already knew going into this fight, but this further proved it. And for Curtis Blades, it showed me that he's got to work on when he does shoot for takedowns, because it seemed if he just kept this a striking matchup on the feet and didn't go for any takedowns, he might have actually won this fight. But he just couldn't help himself because he knows what his strengths are, which are his wrestling, which is why he felt the need to go for that takedown. And that ended up being the reason that he lost this fight. So great performance from Derek Lewis, and we'll see where he goes from here. Maybe a rematch against Alexander Volkov, as I was saying earlier. He might even deserve that title fight against the winner of Stipe Miocic and Francis Ngannou. I wouldn't put that past him. Or maybe match up Derek Lewis against Cyril Gane, who had a pretty uh, good performance against Jarzinho Rosenstrike. So we'll see how the heavyweight division plays out. But this was definitely a huge win for Derek Lewis and for Curtis Blades. He's kind of got to go back to the drawing board, see what he did wrong. He's still a top heavyweight contender. And I believe if if, uh, they did a rematch between Lewis and Curtis Blades, it might go differently and uh, Blades could actually get that win. But on this night, it was uh, a great win for Derek Lewis. And now let's move on to the next UFC fight card. And that was UFC Fight Night Rosenstrike vs. Gane on February 27th, 2021 from the UFC Apex in Las Vegas, Nevada. And in the main event, it was another big heavyweight clash between two top heavyweight contenders in Jarzinho Rosenstrike and Cyril Gane. And uh, Gane, a French fighter who made his debut in the UFC only a few fights ago, as this is now his fifth fight in the UFC, and he's already established himself as one of the best heavyweights in the world. And looking at his record in the UFC, he's got two submission wins over Rafael Pizzoa and Dantel Mays. He followed that up with a unanimous decision win over Tanner Bozer, He knocked out the UFC heavyweight legend in Junior Dos Santos, second round knockout, and followed that up 
with a unanimous decision win over the very dangerous Jarzinho Rosenstrike, beat him over the course of five rounds to win by unanimous decision. And what's something that really impresses me about Styril Gane is that he's got a really well-rounded game. He can take you down. He can beat you on the feet. This guy really seems to have no weaknesses, and I just can't wait to see where his career goes from here. He might be getting a UFC heavyweight title shot if he continues on this upward trajectory. He is only 30 years old. As I said, only five fights in the UFC so far. And to beat guys like Junior Dos Santos and Jarzinho Rosenstrike really shows me that uh, the level he's at is a very high level. And I'd love to see him get matched up, as I said earlier, against maybe Derek Lewis, Alexander Volkov, Curtis Blades. You throw him in there against a fellow top five heavyweight contender to see how he does. If he gets through that fight with flying colors, then maybe uh, you get him into that title fight uh, in the not-too-distant future. So we'll see what happens there. But overall, in his fight against Rosenstrike, I thought it was a really well-rounded performance from Cyril Gane. Rosenstrike, we've seen what he's done to guys like Alistair Overeem, Junior Dos Santos, Andre Arlovsky, Alan Crowder. I mean, this guy was a knockout machine uh, coming into this fight, coming off a knockout over Junior Dos Santos. But Cyril Gane completely mitigated his strengths and really made this the fight, the kind of fight that he was going to win because he was controlling every aspect of it, from the striking to the grappling and really the overall pace of the fight. And looking at the stats, this just backs up what I saw when I was watching the fight. And to be honest, it wasn't the most exciting fight to watch, but overall it showed me that uh, Cyril Gane is definitely a heavyweight contender that any fighter is going to have a very tough job of beating. Gane, he landed 128 out of 202 total strikes. So to only miss about 70 strikes in a five-round fight, that shows me he's very deliberate with his striking. He's very accurate, and it's going to be hard for him uh, to miss a lot of his strikes because of his overall striking ability and his fight IQ and when to throw strikes and when to go for takedowns. And then you look at his striking versatility. He landed 102 significant strikes, 33 to the head, 23 to the body, and 46 to the legs with 4 minutes and 29 seconds of ground control time and was 2 of 14 on his takedown attempts. So what really mitigated Rosenstrike throughout this fight was the leg strikes that uh, Gane continually landed on Rosenstrike. These leg strikes really made uh, Rosenstrike kind of uneven on his legs and not very balanced. And also what happened with these leg strikes is that they really zapped the energy out of Rosenstrike so he couldn't get that much power when he did uh, throw his strikes. And even though uh, Cyril Gane only landed at 2 out of 14 of his takedown attempts. That constant pressure that he put on his opponent, constantly pushing up, pushing him up against the cage and making him really work, really tired out Rosenstrike. 
And you could see by the end of the fight that Stereogane could have kept going, but Rosenstrike was probably very glad that that five-round fight was finally over. And now let's take a look at the stats for Rosenstrike. He landed 49 total strikes, 14 to the head, 5 to the body, and 23 to the legs, and did not go for any takedowns. So this shows me the great head movement of Cyril Ghani. To only get hit 14 times in the head by a vicious striker like Rosenstrike that you know wants to go for his offense and wants to land that big knockout punch shows me that Cyril Ghani not only has great offensive skills, but his defense is also on another level. It's going to be very hard for another fighter to really gain an advantage on Ghani and make him look like the weaker fighter in there. It's going to take a very strong heavyweight, maybe a Derek Lewis, an Nganu, or a Stipe Miocic to really challenge Ghani and give him a very competitive fight. Because while this fight lasted all five rounds, it wasn't all that competitive. You never felt that Ghani was in danger of being knocked out because of his head movement and his defensive instincts. So for Cyril Ghani, I'd love to see him take on Derek Lewis next. And for Jarzinho Rosenstrike, I'd love to see him take on Curtis Blades next. Both Blades and Rosenstrike are coming off losses. Both Ghani and Derek Lewis are coming off big wins. So I think those would be two amazing matchups in the heavyweight division. And it's really a lot of the heavyweight division is going to depend on how this heavyweight matchup plays out between Stipe Miocic and Francis Ngannou. And now let's move on to the next UFC fight card, which was UFC 259 Blockwitz vs. Adesanya on March 6, 2021 from the UFC Apex in Las Vegas, Nevada. And I'll go ahead and start with the third fight on that fight card, which was between Peter Jan and Aljamain Sterling. And ultimately, Jan lost this fight by a disqualification in the fourth round after he landed a knee on a grounded opponent. A grounded opponent means that he had one or both knees on the ground and you can't land a knee to the head of your opponent when they're in that position. Unfortunately, Jan did and it led to the end of the fight because it was determined that Aljamain Sterling could not continue after that very uh, vicious knee. And Jan said he didn't think it was illegal and didn't mean to land an illegal shot. But what you mean and what you do are two different things. And for Jan, unfortunately, it cost him his bantamweight title. Not because he lost the fight in terms of how the fight was going, but he lost because of a disqualification. And this is the first time in UFC history that a title has changed hands not because the other fighter lost, it's because of a disqualification. So some unfortunate UFC history made there. And for Aljamain Sterling, he's probably going to want to have to do a rematch with Peter Jan next. But I thought that uh, Jan was winning this fight up until that disqualification. I thought that he was landing the better strikes, um, getting the better of him in terms of the grappling exchanges. And... As the fight wears on, gets to the later rounds, 
I thought that Jan was just getting stronger and stronger while Aljamain Sterling was fading away more and more and getting weaker and weaker. So I think Jan would have finished this fight perhaps later in that fourth round or most likely in the fifth round. Unfortunately, we didn't get to see how that played out and Aljamain Sterling was determined the winner. So hopefully we see a rematch between these two guys. If not, I'd love to see Corey Sandhagen uh, get his chance going up against Aljamain Sterling next. However, I believe that Corey Sandhagen already has his next fight set, and it will be against TJ Dillashaw in his return fight, so I'm really looking forward to that matchup. Now, getting back to this fight, as I said, Peter Yan I thought was landing the more powerful strikes because he is a more powerful striker and he was getting the better of the grappling exchanges. Of course, Aljamain had his moments, made it somewhat competitive. Uh, I thought he probably won the second round, but overall, Yan was really dictating the pace of the fight, where the fight was going to go, whether on the ground or it was going to stay on the feet. And he wasn't quite dominating, but he was definitely winning that fight. And looking at the fight stats here, uh, Jan landed one knockdown, which shows uh, the power in his striking. He landed 103 out of 157 total strikes. So very efficient there. 48 to the head, 21 to the body, and 17 to the legs. And he had 4 minutes and 12 seconds of ground control time and was 7 of 7 on his takedown attempts. So this shows me that really whenever he wanted to, he could have taken Aljamain Sterling down. I mean, to be 7 of 7 on your takedowns shows uh, the type of grappling acumen he has, and to almost knock out Aljamain Sterling as well shows uh, how great of a striker Jan is, and I think it's only a matter of time until we see a rematch and Jan regains his bantamweight title. Now looking at the stats for Aljamain Sterling, Sterling landed 119 out of 260 total strikes, so not nearly as efficient as Jan. He threw over 100 more strikes than Jan, but landed only about 15 more than Jan. So this shows me he wasn't as accurate with his striking. And like I said earlier, when you miss a lot of strikes, that can take a lot out of you because punching just air is sometimes more tiring than when you actually hit your opponent. And I could see as the fight was wearing on into the later rounds that Aljamain Sterling was getting more and more fatigued. And I think Jan was going to pounce on that and win the fight if not for the disqualification. Getting on to Aljamain Sterling, he landed 97 significant strikes, 40 to the head, 43 to the body, and 14 to the legs, and he is, was one of 17 on his takedown attempts, and he had 3 minutes and 25 seconds of ground control time. And that's something else that can really tire you out. When you go for a takedown time after time and you don't get it, sometimes pushing up against your opponent, really trying for that takedown, can be really tiring, and that's what we saw with Aljamain Sterling, and that's why he was going to fade away and probably lose this fight by knockout. But I can't take anything away from Aljamain Sterling. He lasted four rounds against a very tough fighter in Peter Jan. And while he was most likely, likely going to lose that fight, he ended up winning through sheer heart, sheer grit, 
and unfortunately because of a disqualification. It put the bow on that fight, uh, kind of unfortunately an anticlimactic ending. And for Peter Jan, I know he's got to be devastated, but he should be really proud of his performance and how he stuck through that fight, kept going, kept getting stronger and stronger, and really showed what great stamina he had, great wrestling, and his power striking. That is really impressive for a bantamweight. Uh, the amount of power that uh, Peter Jan can generate with his kicks and also with his punches. You could see that Aljamain Sterling did not like those leg kicks at all, and it was really putting him on wobbly legs. And you combine that with the strong striking and grappling of Peter Jan, I expect he'll regain his title, as I said earlier. Now let's move on to the co-main event. And this co-main event featured the woman's goat in MMA. That would be Amanda Nunes taking on her opponent Megan Anderson in a featherweight title fight at 145 pounds. And as I said previous to this fight, and I'll state it once again, I believe that Amanda Nunes is the most dominant athlete in their respective sport in the world. You look at soccer, basketball, tennis, nobody quite dominates their sport like Amanda Nunes does. She doesn't just win her fights, she dominates from start to finish. And it's really getting unfair at this point. I mean, no offense to the women out there, but it's like a man amongst boys when Amanda Nunes gets in there against these other fighters. She's so skilled on the feet, she's so skilled in terms of her grappling, that really wherever the fight goes, you're not going to favor the other fighter, really in any instant in the fight. And this was no different uh, in the fight against Megan Anderson, who was supposed to be a top featherweight contender, but after her loss to Amanda Nunes, she's since been released by the UFC. So I guess that shows uh, what the UFC thinks of Megan Anderson. And now looking at the fight stats for this fight, Nunes landed 19 out of 26 total strikes. Very efficient there. And she had... 42 seconds of ground control time with two submission attempts and ended up winning this fight by first round submission via armbar. And it was really a beautiful performance from Amanda Nunes as her opponent Megan Anderson could only land two out of five total strikes. So really could not get her offense going at all. It was really over before it even started. Nunes was able to utilize her beautiful boxing to really keep Megan Anderson on the outside and land some devastating punches that almost knocked her out. And then she followed that up with an armbar submission as Anderson was completely overmatched in, in this title fight. And Nunes further established herself as the GOAT in women's MMA. And I think she's just going to keep adding to her legacy each time she fights and at this point, the only woman I could see giving her a competitive fight would be Valentina Shevchenko. I know they've already fought twice, but why not do a third fight? They were both pretty competitive, and Shevchenko and Amanda Nunes are quite clearly the two best uh, fighters in women's MMA right now, and I think they should fight for a third time. It's also hard to come up with a worthy opponent for both Nunes and Shevchenko, 
that's not each other. Looking at what they've done in their past fight, Soshenko winning her past fight, Nunes, of course, winning her past fight, both pretty much in dominant fashion. And I think they're just destined to meet for a third time at the very least. And Nunes really impressed me in the way that she won this fight against Megan Anderson. She could have easily knocked her out, but she decided to go for a submission attempt because she knew she could control the fight wherever it went. And she didn't want to take it easy or just coast, even though she probably thought she could have coasted a little more and kind of seen how the fight played out. No, she wanted to get her opponent out there as quickly as she possibly could. And that's what these great athletes do. No matter the opponent, no matter the situation, they bring their all and they attempt to dominate in their respective sport. You look at what Novak Djokovic did in the Australian Open final, being a very talented Daniil Medvedev, really dominating that match when a lot of people thought that Medvedev actually had a chance of upsetting Novak Djokovic. And then you look at what Amanda Nunes did against Megan Anderson, completely dominating her opponent from start to finish. That's what these great athletes are able to do. And each time Amanda Nunes enters the octagon, you know you're about to witness greatness. And the fight against Megan Anderson was, of course, no different. Well, I can't really heap that much more praise on Amanda Nunes than I've already done. So with that, I'm going to move on to the main event on that Fight Night uh, UFC 259, which was, of course, the light heavyweight title fight between the current champion Jan Blockowitz and the challenger moving up from middleweight uh, from 185 pounds up to 205 in an attempt to become the double champion. And that would, of course, be the amazing Israel Adesanya. Unfortunately, Adesanya lost this fight by unanimous decision, 49-46 and 49-45 on the other two judges' scorecards. And from really the start of this fight, I didn't think that Adesanya quite looked right. And I think after the fight, he said he couldn't really get a good night's sleep. So he kind of looked tired in there, a little bit off, and not like the normal, explosive, exciting Adesanya that we're used to watching. I just didn't think it was a very inspired performance from Adesanya and even though he was winning some rounds, winning some of the striking exchanges, overall, I thought he could have definitely pushed the pace a little bit more and been uh, more exciting and really tried to get this win. But give a lot of credit to Blockowitz because I believe during the first three rounds of this fight, it was all fought on the feet. And Blockowitz really held his own in the striking department, never was really in any danger of getting knocked out by Adesanya. But what really sealed the win for Blockowitz were those takedowns he was able to get in the fourth and fifth rounds and really keep Adesanya down after he got those takedowns. Adesanya could not get back up to his feet, and that's ultimately why he lost this fight. Is not so much because of the striking exchanges, but because of when he was taken down, he could not get back up and uh, continue the fight. So after this five round light heavyweight title fight, let's look at the fight stats here. Blockwitz he landed 184 out of 276 total strikes. Very impressive there. 67 to the head, 29 to the body, and 11 to the legs. 
and he was 3 of 5 on his takedown attempts for 7 minutes and 6 seconds of ground control time. So in a 25-minute fight, he was able to get Adesanya on the ground for over 7 minutes, which is really, as I said, what cemented the win for him. And then Adesanya, he landed 99 out of 182 total strikes, 32 to the head, 17 to the body, and 29 to the legs, and was not able to take Blockowitz down. So this shows me that Adesanya wasn't active enough in the striking department to get a knockout win. And this shows me that Blockowitz was really able to fight a very disciplined fight, not get too excited, not put himself in too much danger in terms of his body movement and his striking. He was really able to fight on the outside, kind of keep Adesanya at bay, and not let him gain those advantages that we've seen him gain against Paolo Costa and Robert Whitaker in the past. And really what uh, Adesanya is very good at doing is hitting the front leg of his opponents to really uh, make their opponents wobbly because of those powerful leg kicks. But against Blockowitz, he was able to land 29 out of 36 leg kicks but guess what? Blockwitz was able to defend those well enough, and he's got that strong upper body, that strong base. As the naturally bigger man at uh, 205 pounds, that he was able to take those strikes and really make this more of a grimy fight that Adesanya was really going to have to earn if he was going to win. And what Blockwitz is good at doing is he can win by knockout. But he can also win a long, drawn-out fight. Uh, we saw him win by knockout against Dominic Reyes. And then against Israel Adesanya, we saw him draw him, draw him out, take Adesanya to deep waters. And then when Adesanya was starting to fatigue a little bit, that's when he went for his takedowns and put Adesanya down and he could not get back up. But as I said earlier, I did not think this was the Adesanya that we're used to seeing, the same uh, striking, the same head movement, and maybe this was due to him not getting a good night's sleep, but I can't take anything away from Blockwitz, who right now is still the champ at uh, 205, and I think the next fight for Blockwitz will, without a doubt, be Glover Teixeira. When you look at what Glover Teixeira did to Thiago Santos and Anthony Smith, he definitely deserves this title shot, and Glover Teixeira is an older guy, I believe in his 40s, so he definitely deserves this title shot against Jan Blockwitz, and I'm looking forward to that light heavyweight title fight. And for Adesanya, I think this is going to be the last time we see him fight at light heavyweight at 205 pounds. I think he's going to stay at 185 pounds and continue to rule that division. Now the question is, Who's going to fight him next at 185? He's already beat Robert Whitaker. He's already beat Paulo Costa and Yoa Romero. So who's really the next guy? Maybe he gets the winner of Gastelum and uh, Robert Whitaker, or we'll see what happens in that division. But right now, I don't see Adesanya losing his 185-pound title anytime soon. And for Blockowitz, it's really a toss-up for me in how he does in this fight against Glover Teixeira. I could see Teixeira taking down Blockowitz and really just overwhelming him with his pressure like he did with Thiago Santos and Anthony Smith. 
Uh, right now, I can't make a prediction, but I'm definitely excited to see where both Adesanya and Jan Blockwitz go from here. Two great champions in their respective weight divisions, but maybe Adesanya bit off a bit more than he can chew in trying to become the double champion. And I definitely still want to see the fight between John Bones Jones and Israel Adesanya. Unfortunately, with this loss to Jan Blockwitz, I don't think that fight will be happening, and I don't think it makes sense right now for that fight to happen, as John Jones is moving up to heavyweight, and Jan Block Blockwitz is the champion at 205, and of course Adesanya will be fighting at 185 pounds from here on out, barring a major surprise. So, really a great, well-rounded performance from Jan Blockwitz here, the Polish power. He was really able to use his striking and his takedowns with great versatility. He's kind of got those unorthodox striking techniques that keep his opponents off balance. And we even saw this against perhaps the best striker in the UFC in Israel Adesanya. He was never really able to gain a rhythm with his striking because of Blockwitz's head movement and his unorthodox striking techniques coming from weird angles. And Adesanya had a tough time dealing with that and really getting into a good fighting rhythm. And with that, let's move on to the next UFC fight card. And that would be UFC Fight Night Edwards vs. Muhammad, March 13th, 2021 from the UFC Apex in Las Vegas, Nevada. Ultimately, this fight, uh, the main event between Leon Edwards and Bilal Muhammad, was ruled a no contest because of an eye poke by... Uh, Leon Edwards that was determined that Bilal Edwards could no longer continue in this fight. Therefore, it was ruled a no contest. But before the stoppage came, unfortunately, in the second round, uh, via eye poke, I thought that Edwards was really getting the better of Muhammad here, landing the better strikes, really touching him up quite well. And I thought he probably would have knocked out Bilal Muhammad before the end of the fight. And looking at the fight stats here, Edwards landed 20 of 40 total strikes, 10 to the head, 5 to the body, and 4 to the legs. He had 19 seconds of ground control time. Muhammad landed 14 total strikes, 7 to the head, and 1 to the body, and he had 33 seconds of ground control time. So looking at the stats doesn't really tell you the story of this fight. As I said earlier, Leon Edwards really looked quite sharp in there landing a lot of good strikes against a very quality welterweight in Bilal Muhammad. Ultimately, for uh, Leon Edwards, it's an unfortunate return to the octagon for him, as I'm sure this fight did not end how he wanted it to. But this guy at 170 pounds should perhaps be taking on Kazmat Shemaev next. I know that fight was scheduled. Unfortunately, it never came to fruition because Kazmat Shemaev has had a very tough battle with COVID. Ultimately, now I think he's on the other side of it, and I believe he tweeted he's going to come back and smash everybody. So I'd love to see Leon Edwards take on uh, Kazma Chimaev next. And for Bilal Muhammad, he fought decently in this fight, but ultimately I thought he was overmatched in that Leon Edwards, in terms of his striking, was just on another level than him, and he was really timing Bilal Muhammad quite well landing the more significant strikes and definitely getting the better of uh, Bilal Muhammad in this fight. 
He just seemed like he was a step ahead of his opponent and was going to win this fight no matter how long it lasted. And we didn't get to see if this fight was going to go to the ground, but definitely on the feet, uh, Blah Muhammad was being outclassed by Leon Edwards. And I can't wait to see Edwards back in the octagon, as well as Blah Muhammad. These guys are both quality welterweights, and we'll see if either of them, uh, most likely Leon Edwards, gets a title shot against Kamara Usman perhaps in the future. And as I said, the next fight I want to see for Leon Edwards is against Kazmat Shemaev and for Blal Muhammad. Why not match him up against maybe Robbie Lawler or uh, Jeff Neal, maybe Neil Magny next? I think he's on up and up in his fight career, but against a guy like Leon Edwards, who's right now the third-ranked welterweight behind only Colby Covington and Gilbert Burns. I think he bit off a bit more than he could chew in going up and fighting Leon Edwards as uh, right now Bilal Muhammad is a 13th ranked welterweight and Leon Edwards is the third ranked. So 10 spots difference there in terms of uh, the rankings and then fourth we've got Jorge Masvidal and fifth Stefan Thompson. That's another really interesting fight for both these guys. Bilal Muhammad against Stephen Thompson and also Leon Edwards against Stephen Thompson. We saw what Thompson did against Jeff Neal really staying on the outside using that karate style to uh, beat up Jeff Neal over the course of the fight and Neal could never really get on the inside and land his power punches. Because of that it was a great vintage performance from Stephen Thompson and I'd love to see him either take on Leon Edwards or Bilal Muhammad next. And unfortunately for Bilal Muhammad, this fight did end in an eye poke and a no contest, but he did make UFC history as the first fighter from Palestine to headline a fight card. So big props to him for doing that. And I think this will be the first of many fight cards that uh, Bilal Muhammad will be headlining because he is a main event type of fighter. He's very exciting with his striking techniques. But ultimately against Leon Edwards, I think that Edwards was just on a higher level than him and that's why ultimately he was going to lose this fight. Now let's move on to the next fight card, which was UFC Fight Night Brunson versus Holland. And this was back on March 20th, 2021 from the UFC Apex in Las Vegas, Nevada. And in the main event, it was a middleweight fight between Derek Brunson and Kevin Holland and going into this fight Holland uh, had a lot of momentum coming off an amazing 2020 where I believe he won five times in that calendar year but Derek Brunson really did well to mitigate Kevin Holland and he fought very well to his strengths which was wrestling and really dominated the fight in terms of the wrestling department. Now when the fight was on the feet for those brief moments during the fight, Holland was really getting the better of Derek Brunson and he thought maybe he was going to get the knockout. But ultimately what Holland has to work on is not putting his torso so far forward because whenever he would throw a strike, his torso would come forward, Derek Brunson would go down for a takedown and usually get it. Now let's look at the fight stats for this middleweight main event at 185 pounds. Brunson landed 226 strikes. He landed 28 to the head, 7 to the body, 
and 8 to the legs. He had 16 minutes and 55 seconds of ground control time. He was 6 of 12 on his takedowns and had one submission attempt. So that's right, in a 25 minute fight, almost 17 minutes, so only 8 minutes really on the feet, 17 minutes were spent on the ground with Holland on the bottom and Derek Brunson on top just really controlling the grappling exchanges and Holland could not get back up so they really exposed some weaknesses in Holland's game. Number one, as I said earlier, he can't put his torso so far forward when he's throwing his strikes and number two, he's got to get better takedown defense and then when he does get taken down, he's got to do a better job of figuring out a way to get back up. He can't just get taken down and just lie there for the rest of the round as he did in this fight. Now looking at Holland's stats, he landed 190 total strikes, 28 to the head, 2 to the body, and 6 to the legs. He had a minute and 47 seconds of ground control time and was 1 of 1 on his takedown attempts. I think that's what was the most surprising part of this fight is that Holland actually landed a takedown on Brunson but it was not nearly enough for him to win a decision in this fight because overall he got dominated in the wrestling department and was really exposed in this fight and it really showed us fight fans what he needs to work on going into his next fight. And now let's look at the middleweight rankings. Of course, Israel Adesanya is the champion still. Robert Whitaker, number one. Paulo Costa, two. Jared Kanier, three. Derek Brunson, fourth. Darren Till, fifth. Marvin Vittori, sixth. Jack Hermanson, seventh. Eight, Calvin Gastelum, nine, Uriah Hall, and ten, Kevin Holland. So right now, Kevin Holland is 10th, and Derek Brunson is 4th. So for Derek Brunson, I'd love to see him take on maybe Jack Hermanson next. And for Kevin Holland, why not match him up against Uriah Hall, perhaps, or maybe even Jared Cannonier next. Both these guys are very quality middleweights, but I don't think either of them are quite ready for a title shot yet, but they're definitely... Uh, very quality fighters and Derek Brunson showed that he's just a little bit more well-rounded and even sometimes on the feet in that fight uh, Derek Brunson was getting the better of Kevin Holland landing some nice uppercuts on the feet to set up his next takedown and Holland he landed some good strikes on the feet but it wasn't nearly enough and he didn't keep the fight up uh, on the feet for nearly long enough to ultimately win that fight. Well, that will conclude all my UFC recaps. And now let's get into my UFC preview of this upcoming fight card coming up on March 27th, uh, 2021 from the UFC Apex in Las Vegas, Nevada. And that is, of course, UFC 260 Miocic vs. Nganu 2, the rematch. Uh, the main card starts on pay-per-view at 7 p.m., Pacific Time prelims on ESPN and ESPN Plus at 5 p.m. and early prelims at 4.30 on ESPN and ESPN Plus. So a very strong fight card here. Let's see who's fighting uh, coming up this Saturday. We've, of course, 
got the big main event rematch between Stipe Miocic and Francis Ngannou for Miocic's heavyweight title. And in the third fight, we've got Sean O'Malley taking on Thomas Almeida in a very tasty bantamweight matchup that I think has a chance to be fight of the night. If Almeida can uh, keep this fight on the feet and make it go for a few rounds. Sean O'Malley is 26 years old. He's 5'11", 135 pounds with a 72-inch reach. His opponent, Thomas Almeida, is 29 years old. He's 5'7", 135 pounds with a 70-inch reach. Almeida is Brazilian, while O'Malley is American. And uh, O'Malley is the favorite in this fight, coming in as a minus 330 favorite. Almeida the underdog at plus 260. So if you're thinking of backing Almeida, you could get a pretty decent payday there. But uh, let's look at Almeida's fight history here quickly. And Almeida is coming off three straight losses to Jimmy Rivera, Rob Font, and most recently to Jonathan Martinez back in October of 2020. And he's also lost to Cody Garbrandt in the past, but his most recent win came in 2016 when he beat Albert Morales. So this guy, Almeida, hasn't won since 2016. He's hoping that in 2021, he can finally get back to his winning ways. But for Sean O'Malley, he is also coming off a loss. The first loss in his career to Marlon Vera by a knockout in the first round. And this was kind of a fluke knockout because Sean O'Malley hurt his ankle and went down. Marlon Vera took full advantage and got the knockout win. But I think if O'Malley hadn't suffered that injury during the fight, he might have won that fight. But this one loss doesn't take away from the very promising promising career of Sean O'Malley, who previous to that knocked out Eddie Wideland beautifully with, I believe, a straight right hand that put him down. And it was really a one-punch knockout as that was the end of the fight. And Eddie Wideland is a very quality UFC veteran, and Sean O'Malley disposed of him really with one punch something we've never seen before uh, Wyland get finished like that. And for O'Malley, he's got to bounce back after his loss to Marlon Vera. And I think he will win this fight against Thomas Almeida. O'Malley's a very unique striker. He throws a lot of unorthodox strikes from different angles. Very hard to predict how he's going to move and how he's going to strike. And he's got a lot of power. Even when it looks like he's not throwing with a lot of power, his punches will generate a lot of power, as you saw against Eddie Wineland when he knocked him out. And there's really two ways that a fighter gets to be good at throwing power shots. One is by technique. They're just very technically sound. That's why when they land their strikes, they land with a devastating effectiveness. And the other is kind of just God-given ability. Some guys are just born with great power, like a Derek Lewis or a Francis Ngannou. And some guys get their power from their technique. I think Sean O'Malley has a little bit of both. He's got great God-given ability to get knockouts, but also he's very technically sound in terms of how he throws his strikes. So I see this fight uh, going O'Malley's way. I'll say O'Malley wins by 
second round knockout. I predict a spectacular knockout similar to the one he had against Eddie Wineland. So we'll see if O'Malley can come back from his only career loss to Marlon Vera and win against Thomas Almeida, which, as I said, I think he will via second round knockout. In previous to the loss uh, to Vera, he beat Eddie Wineland, uh, Jose Quinones, Andre Sukmath, and uh, Terrian Ware. So his record right now is 12-1, and one, 8 wins by knockout, and he has one submission win. So clearly this guy is a knockout artist. And his opponent, Thomas Almeida, is actually a bit more experienced in there. He's 22-4, and four, but as I said, he's lost his last three fights, and he also lost to Cody Garbrandt before that in 2016. And his last win came in 2016 to Albert Morales. And I don't think he'll be beating Sean O'Malley, so... O'Malley here by a spectacular second round knockout. Really looking forward to watching O'Malley again because I think he's one of the most exciting fighters on all of the UFC and you never quite know what he's going to do because of his unorthodox striking techniques and really his all-around striking game. Now let's get to the co-main event, a welterweight fight between Tyron Woodley and Vincent Luque Woodley is American and Luque is Brazilian so another matchup between an American and a Brazilian however in this fight Luque is the favorite at minus 260 Woodley the underdog at plus 210 and Woodley is 38 years old and he's a uh, 5 foot 9 170 pounds with a 74 inch reach and his opponent Vincent Luque is 29 years old. He's 5'11", 170 pounds with a 75 and a half inch reach. And Luque is the favorite going into this fight because Tyron Woodley did not look very good in his last fight against Colby Covington. Covington pretty much dominated him with his wrestling and ultimately he lost that fight because I believe he had a rib injury that put a stop to the fight. But Covington was going to win that fight either way. And Vincent Luque has a record of 19-7 with one draw. He's got 11 knockouts and 6 wins by submission. So this shows me he can really get it done either by knockout or by submission. A very well-rounded fighter. He's coming off an August 1st win in 2020 over Randy Brown. A knockout win in the second round. He also beat Nico Price previous to that. Uh, by TKO Dr. Stoppage in the third round. His last loss came to the very talented and very hard to hit Stevan Thompson as Luque lost that fight by unanimous decision. But his last loss previous to that came to Leon Edwards by unanimous decision in 2017. So he really had a streak of almost two years without a loss, beating uh, some quality fighters like Mike Perry, and he's also beaten uh, Bilal Muhammad as well. So this guy's got some quality wins on his career, but he's never quite faced an opponent like Tyron Woodley. And I feel like a lot of people are writing Tyron Woodley off, especially because of his last few performances against Kamara Usman, also against Kobe Covington. He just hasn't looked like uh, that dominant uh, welterweight champion that he once was 
you know, all those years before, uh, back in 2018 when he beat Darren Till by submission. Since then, after uh, beating Darren Till, he lost to Kamara Usman by unanimous decision. Also, Gilbert Burns by unanimous decision. And most recently, a knockout loss to Colby Covington in the fifth round. So, he's coming off three straight losses. And he really needs a win if he wants to continue his career. I think if he loses to Vincent Luque and it's in devastating fashion, then he might just call it a career. I mean, he's already 38 years old. He's already been the champion at welterweight. He doesn't really have much more to prove in terms of uh, continuing to fight. So this could indeed be the last time we ever see Tyron Woodley in the octagon if he loses to Vincent Luque, and it's not really a close fight. And this is a big matchup between two welterweight top 10 contenders. Right now, Tyron Woodley is 7th behind Michael Chiesa, 8th Damian Maya, 9 Neil Magny, and 10 Vincent Luque. So this is a matchup between the 7th ranked guy in Tyron Woodley and the 10th ranked in Vincent Luque. Maybe after this fight, those two rankings flip and Vincent Luque is ranked above Tyron Woodley, especially if he gets a win here, which I think he will. So I'm going to go ahead and pick Vincent Luque to win by unanimous decision. I think he'll be able to control him if this fight does go to the ground. As we saw Tyron Woodley being controlled against uh, Kamara Usman, Colby Covington, and also against Gilbert Burns. I think Vincent Luque might not be as good as those fighters, but he should be able to hold his own if this fight does indeed become a grappling match. And then if it stays on the feet, I definitely think Vincent Luque has the advantage in the striking department. He can be a very quality fighter, a very explosive striker, really able to get uh, knockouts with his explosive movements, whether it be via kick or a punch. This guy has got a lot of striking versatility to his game. So I like Vincent Luque by unanimous decision. And as much as I want to pick Tyron Woodley to pull off the upset, he hasn't shown me anything in his past fights that would really warrant me to pick him. But I definitely could see him springing the upset against Luque, looking really good, looking really fast, and really reestablishing himself in the welterweight division. Unfortunately, I just don't see that happening, not at this late stage in his career when he's already 38 years old and coming off three really tough losses. So Luque is the favorite at minus 260, Woodley the underdog at plus 210. I'm going with Luque by unanimous decision. And now it's time to preview the big heavyweight title fight, the rematch between Stipe Miocic and Francis Ngannou. Miocic has a record of 20-3 and and Ganu a record of 15-3. Miocic is the slight underdog at plus 105 and Ganu the slight favorite at minus 125. Francis Ngannou the challenger is 34 years old, 6 foot 4, 261 pounds with an 83 inch reach and Miocic is 38 years old, 6'4", 233 pounds with an 80-inch reach. And right now, going into this fight, I believe that Stipe Miocic is the greatest UFC heavyweight in history. However, if he loses to Francis Ngannou, he cannot keep that title. 
And I think this win would really cement his legacy as the greatest heavyweight ever. But he's going to have a really tough challenge in front of him in Francis Ngannou, who is just a behemoth of a man. Very scary. Perhaps the scariest man in the UFC. I mean, you look at his body. You look at how he punches. You look at his scary knockouts. And you're like, is this guy even human? This Cameroonian heavyweight could make history as the first fighter from Cameroon to become a UFC champion. And his only losses in the UFC have come to Derek Lewis by unanimous decision and Stipe Miocic by unanimous decision. Both losses came in 2018. Since those losses, he's knocked out Curtis Blades in the first round. Cain Velasquez in the first round, Junior Dos Santos in the first round, and most recently, Jarzinho Rosenstrike in only 20 seconds in the first round. That's right, he's coming off four straight first round knockouts. He's also knocked out big names like Alistair Overeem and Andre Arlovsky. He also beat Curtis Blades back in 2016 by TKO Dr. Stoppage. So he's beaten Curtis Blades twice. And great heavyweights like Junior Dos Santos, Cain Velasquez, and Alistair Overeem, all beating those guys by first round knockout. This guy is an absolutely scary fighter, and I would be very scared if I had to face him. I can't really fathom how Stipe Miocic is feeling now, especially after watching the tape of uh, Ngannou's last few fights against Rosenstrike and Dos Santos. This guy is just an utter destroyer. So Miocic is really going to have to have a wrestling heavy attack, I believe, and see if he can take him down a few times and really make Nganu tire out because Miocic will be on top of him with uh, his grappling techniques. That's why this fight is so hard to pick because I could easily see Nganu getting a first round knockout and becoming the UFC heavyweight champion. I could also see Miocic grinding out a decision win with good striking and solid grappling as he tires out Nganu over the course of five rounds. And now looking at Miocic's fight history, he's coming off an August 15th win in 2020 over Daniel Cormier. Previous to that, he knocked out Daniel Cormier in August of 2019. So that's almost a year between his two most recent fights. He's coming back quicker than that as he's fighting now in March of 2021. But his only career losses have come to Daniel Cormier by knockout, Junior Dos Santos by unanimous decision in 2014, and Stefan Struve by uh, knockout back in 2012. So really this guy hasn't lost since 2014 because he avenged his one loss to Daniel Cormier in 2018. So really for... Since 2016, this guy has held the heavyweight championship belt until briefly losing it uh, to Daniel Cormier. And he's beat a who's who of heavyweight legends from Fabricio or Verdum, Andre Orlovsky, Alistair Overeem, got a knockout win over Junior Dos Santos, avenging that loss, unanimous decision win over Francis Ngannou in his last three fights, have come against Daniel Cormier, who has since retired. So for this fight, I could see it going either way, but I'm going to go ahead and pick Francis Ngannou to win by first round knockout. 
I just think he's the biggest destroyer in the UFC. And finally, he's going to get over the hump and become the UFC heavyweight champion. I just think that uh, Stipe Miocic is a little past his prime. And even though he beat Daniel Cormier by unanimous decision, that was still a pretty close fight and a well-fought fight. But that was between two very old fighters. And Nganu is only 34 years old. He's a young lion, and he's just waiting for his chance to pounce. And I think he's going to find that and pounce on Miocic and knock him out in the first round. However, I would not be surprised at all if Miocic ends up winning this fight by decision. We've seen him do it once before against Francis Ngannou, and he could do it again. But I think Ngannou might just be on another level than from their first fight and could indeed become the UFC champion come Saturday, March 27th. So I'm really looking forward to this fight and really the whole fight card. But for right now, I'm going to go ahead and pick Nganu by first round knockout. I mean, I'm just looking at what he's doing to these other heavyweights, how he's just walking right through them, knocking them out, no problem, with tremendous power in his punches. I don't know if Miocic can really stay away from that for too long. But on the other hand, Miocic is a very solid all-round fighter. Whether it goes to the ground or it stays on the feet, he's got power in both hands. He's got really good takedowns, really solid wrestling. And that's somewhere that uh, Nganu could really struggle in this fight is in the grappling department. Because if most of this fight becomes a wrestling match, I think that Miocic once again wins by decision. But as I said, I'm going with Nganu by first round knockout. Well, my fellow believers, that will conclude episode number 26 of Combat Bets with Jason Barron on the Believe Network, presented by betonline.ag. Thank you so much for listening, and remember, tune in to my other episode if you want to hear all my takes on what's been going on in the world of boxing. But I thought it'd be better for this particular podcast to just focus on the UFC. So thank you so much for listening once again. And remember, Kobe forever, Mamba forever, Maradona forever, Hank Aaron forever. And of course, I've also got to add Algin Baylor forever. We've lost some great Laker legends, but hopefully the Lakers are okay this season, even though right now they're without Anthony Davis and LeBron James. They're really going to have to push forward here and uh, try to, you know, keep the ship afloat while their two star players are out. Once again, thank you so much for listening. And remember, tune in for UFC 260 coming up this Saturday. Thank you. And enjoy all the great fights that are coming up. And also remember, continue to social distance, continue to wear your mask as we get through this virus together. Hopefully we're all going to be vaccinated very soon. And once again, thank you so much for listening and have a great weekend, everybody. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. 
And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.